Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Genesis 13. So, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Then they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit now, we pray, to illumine to us this, the word of God. And Lord, no matter where we find ourselves this morning in relationship to you, draw us closer, Jesus, to yourself. Would we know the kind welcome of your grace. Do a good work now, we pray, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. So not all of us here are homeowners. It's okay if you're a homeowner. Okay, if you're not. As far as home ownership goes, though, there are some happy homeowners and some unhappy homeowners. I'm two for three. I've had two happy experiences as far as home ownership, and one very, very unhappy experience as far as home ownership. And why should I bother to tell you about the happy ones? Let's go straight to the unhappy one. A couple of you have heard the story about our first church. 
and our first house, my wife and Emily, as we take a trip down memory lane over the Walt Whitman Bridge into West Philadelphia onto the 800 block of St. Bernard Street. It's only about, say, 20, 25 minutes from here. That was an unhappy home ownership experience. A little bit of, of my backstory, I was, when I was in seminary, we were living in West Philadelphia. I was going to a seminary outside of the city. Emily was at University of Pennsylvania. We were living in this neighborhood, going to this tiny little Presbyterian church. And when I graduated from seminary, the church called me to be their pastor. It's time to buy a house, if we were able. And we were committed to the church. We were committed to the neighborhood. And we said, one of the ways that we can commit to this neighborhood is by owning here but we stretched and stretched and stretched to the very limits of our financial ability at the time. As a, as a phrase goes, we were house poor. And when the inspection report before we bought the house came, it was pretty bad. The inspection report may as well have been delivered in a biohazard suit, like, here you go, have fun with this. But it was even worse than that in a couple of different ways. Day one when we moved in was okay. Night one was not so great. You can ask me after the service or another time what happened on night one. It was an experience. But things really got rocky on day two when it was raining inside. And I asked Emily when I saw the rain in our front master bedroom and the back room that we were using as a little guest room slash office on the second floor, I said, Em, this, we're new to home ownership, but it's not supposed to rain on the inside, right? The rain, rain's supposed to be out there so we could be safe and dry in here. She corroborated my impression. So we got roofers and contractors, and this is what they said. They said, the good news is that your roof looks great. It was a flat roof, twin Victorian, with two intentional indentations, front of the house, back of the house, where there were two drain holes. And the roofer said, the roof looks great. That's the good news. The bad news is the drain holes are not connected to anything. And you may not know about roofing. I didn't really, but I at least knew that that didn't sound good when the drain holes on top of the roof were connected to nothing. So every time it rained, there's supposed to be like drain pipes connected to the drain holes that very conveniently shunt the water away from inside of the house. Every time it rained, we were just irrigated by, by what was going on outside. So that was a huge repair. It was not caught in the inspection. Had to tear up the roof establish a drainage system, re-roof. We discovered a lot of damage to the brick because of all the interior water, so we had to re-brick a substantial part of the back of the house. So that happened. And there were other things too. I learned that there were two kinds of radiators. One kind of radiator produces heat. The other kind of radiator produces noise. And we had the latter kind. So the radiators were super noisy. It never got above 57 degrees inside in the wintertime. And in $2,000, the heat cost us 1000 bucks a month to not be heated. It was kind of a package deal right there. We had lead paint and a couple of lead paint scares with our boys at the time. The kitchen was unfinished. There was a sink and the counter space. There was one tiny lip of a counter that actually was not as wide as the sink itself. That wasn't that great. The toilet bounced. There was a one bathroom house. And soon after we got in, the toilet dislodged itself from where it was mounted into the ground. So the only thing holding up the toilet was its connection to the main soil line going through the back of the house. So when you'd sit on the toilet, it would bounce. 
Now, if I were prime gym in high school, I would think bouncing toilets are the best. This is great. But when you're a homeowner, you're kind of like, ah, oh, this is not so good. But the worst part was, even after the roof and drain stuff was fixed, there was some collection of standing water somewhere in the vicinity of the master bedroom so that every time it rained, we would have mosquitoes inside the master bedroom. So what I would do is after Emily and the boys, we just had our two boys at the time, would go to sleep, I would stay up in our bedroom with just the reading light on, waiting for the mosquitoes to come to me, killing them one by one until I could be assured that there are no more mosquitoes for the night. It, it was quite fun. So this, this house was turning me into Mr. Kurtz and the horror of the horror was everywhere. But genuinely, I was tormented living there. And I would think to myself, I have brought my family into abject, permanent financial ruin. What am I even doing here? And the torment was constant because no matter where I would go in the house, I would be reminded of the financial ruin that I had put my family in, whether I was bouncing on the toilet or in the kitchen or just sitting in the main sitting room, hearing radiators not produce heat. No matter where I went in the house, there was something that would torment me. And here's the irony. In that season of life, in my ministry, and my preaching, West Philly was a very mixed income area, and there were a lot of people in the congregation, percentage-wise, that did not have a whole lot of money at all. So I spent a lot of time preaching from the scriptures, trust in God, and he's going to provide for you. Trust in God, and he's going to provide for you. We worry too much, even if we don't have a lot of money and have a lot of stuff, we still worry too much about that. God promise you, promises you and Jesus Christ deeper security than what money and possessions will ever give you. But I was a total hypocrite because I was so stressed out all the time. I'm surprised that I'm enjoying the Rings of Power series on Amazon, the new Lord of the Rings show. I was kind of nonplussed by the original Lord of the Rings stuff way back in the day, but this is, this is really good. If you know the original series, the Smeagol Gollum stuff, I, does, does that reference make any sense? So anyway, there's a character in Lord of the Rings who is called Smeagol, seems like a nice guy. I've, I actually don't know this analogy very well at all, but the Ring of Power he becomes very, very tempted by, and he's like my precious, and his whole life revolves around getting and keeping the ring. It physically deforms him, He's so obsessed that he makes tons of bad choices and does bad things to himself and other people as he is consumed with not having enough, needing to get that ring. So I was doing this total smeagol on the outside, nice guy, everything's fine, trust in God to provide. But on the inside, I was this golem-like like preacher, always not enough, always need more, always suffering from scarcity. There was one other problem with the house. We thought we could get by this way. There was no basement access. When the, the contractor who had done a quick rehab on the house, rehabbed the house for, for sale, I imagined that the basement steps were in bad shape. So instead of repairing them or putting in new steps, they just drywalled where the steps to the basement were. And we thought, okay, we don't need basement steps. We can do this. But my wife, Emily, was at home with two kids under two and a half. We didn't have enough storage space in the kitchen. So in the basement, there were the washer and dryer and additional kitchen storage. And 
It didn't take me long to see Emily try to set up the kids in different places where they could be safe, walk out the front of the house, go all the way around to the back of the house into the basement, check something, and get back for the kids to be okay upstairs. So I began to get some estimates on how much does it cost to rebuild basement steps. And I was shocked by the estimates, not pleasantly. The estimates were off by about a factor of 10. So I asked a couple of contractors, are, are you sure about the decimal place? That's my only question right now. But there was a guy at church, a deacon at our church actually, I've mentioned him before in other connections named Lloyd, a super, super generous person. And I was, he was a carpenter, but I was holding off on asking Lloyd to give us an estimate for the basement because I knew he's going to lowball me. He's not going to give me a full estimate because he's going to give me a discount. But we got so desperate, I called Lloyd. Lloyd, could you come over and give us an estimate on the basement steps if you'd be willing to build those? So he came with his ruler and with his, all the carpenter tools and made some notes, came back the next day and said, Jim, this is what we want to do. I was like, tell me, Lloyd. He said, last night my wife and I were praying and you've been preaching a lot about how we worry way too much about having enough money and we need to grow in the spirit of generosity. You even were preaching about that last Sunday. Jim, I'm going to do your basement steps for free. And I thought to myself, you were convicted by that? That's a drop in the bucket, the ocean, compared to how convicted, Lloyd, I am to hear that. And so I resolved then, and it's been a struggle since. But whenever I'm pressed into corners of scarcity, not having enough, I thought to myself, I want to be like Lloyd. I want to be different. And in this story, Abraham, again, is a model of faith and faithfulness to be different. We see in him open-handed generosity open-handed grace. How do we escape scarcity? It's by moving towards God's security. So two parts from here as we look at the story from Genesis chapter 13, like the title of the sermon says, from scarcity to security. Scarcity first. We pick up Previously on Genesis, we have seen Abram so far. He becomes Abraham later on in the story. He's called by God, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Go from there to the land that I will show you. And then Abraham went, as God said, God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. All the families in the earth are going to be blessed through you. To you and your offspring, I will give this land. We see at the beginning of chapter 12, faithful Abraham then the descent in more ways than one into Egypt, faithless Abraham, where he behaves very badly, controlled by scarcity there, we'll talk about. But it seems like Abram here is back on track. And the geography of Genesis chapter 13 has, at some level, symbolism. The geography is connected to whether you're doing good stuff or bad stuff. Moving towards a promised land, which is what Abram's doing here, is good. Moving away from the promised land, not so good. Verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev, back on track. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold, journeyed from the Negev to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Abram, protagonist, enter Lot in verse 5. Lot. 
And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds. Lot, is, nephew of Abram, has been a minor character so far. Kind of a feckless dude we're going to see in this and stories subsequent to this. But there's a dispute. This land can't fit all of us and all of our stuff. And then Abram makes an offer, the dispute. Verse 6. So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between Abram and all of his stuff and people and Lot and all of his people. But then Abram makes an open-handed, generous, gracious offer. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot, you choose, Abram says. And in the words of the night at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lot chooses poorly. He takes the wrong land. Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. Now, eagle-eyed readers over the years with Genesis say there are deliberate echoes of form and content, lifting up the eyes, seeing that this was good. That echoes back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are first tempted by the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, the same structure. They lifted up their eyes, and they saw that the, tree, that the fruit was good for food. So there's an echo of wrong choices being made here, and Lot chose the land that looked good, but actually was not, adjacent to the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll talk about another time, but going towards the bad place, which is what Abram is doing here. He's moving in the wrong direction. And for the purposes of this, of this narrative, he's disqualified from the line of blessing. He must have known that God told Abram, to, to you and your offspring, I will give this land, namely Canaan, and now... Lot has placed himself outside of that land. Verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, contrast, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. One way or another, we don't understand what's going on fully within Lot. He knew the land of promise was over here, but he saw this land over here and said, that land looks better. That land is going to give me what I need. I can't really trust God for this land over here. It doesn't look as good. Contrast with Abram, which we'll talk about in a moment, but let's talk about us. In what ways are you like Gollum, driven by scarcity, not enough? What is your ring by which you orient your entire life around? You can be old, you can be young, you can be a student, it can be money, it can be stuff, it can be time. And for what it's worth, there is some correlation between, or an inverse proportion, rather, between having a lot of money and having a lot of time, where for a lot of people, they might have a lot of money, but you're really time poor. Or you might be the opposite. You have a lot of time, but you don't have a lot of money. Or it's a double whammy when you're really time-stretched and you don't have a lot of time, but then also you don't have a lot of money either. That's really hard. So money, stuff, time, relationships. I don't have enough friends. My friends aren't good enough. Romantic relationship. My romantic relationship isn't good enough. Or I don't have one and I need one. Or it can be health. How am I doing physically? I just need more health in my body. It can be recreation or experiences. I need more. I need more. I need more. I need more. 
In Genesis chapter 12, when Abram went all the way down to Egypt, he was facing scarcity of skin. He wanted to save his skin. I'm worried that I'm going to be killed down there. So he says, Sarah, I just say, you're not my wife, but you're my sister instead. So, so Pharaoh will take you and I'll be saved. And you see that that scarcity mindset turned somebody like even faithful Abram into fearful, insecure, selfish, and cruel. What are your Gollum moments? Where does not having enough in direction X, in direction Y, in direction Z, where does it make you break bad, behave badly, whether internally or externally? How does it shape how you respond? How does it frame so many different things in your life? But let's double-click on that. Well, I just need a little bit more, and then I'll have enough, and then I'll be happy. It doesn't work that way at all. If, if we're driven by scarcity and think, I need more of this, it's never going to give you what you want. It's futile, and it's also destructive. Thomas Aquinas, a theologian of the Middle Ages par excellence, said this, and it worked a thousand years ago, still works today. In the desire for wealth and for temporal goods, when we already possess them, we despise them and seek others. He's talking about stuff here. When you really want something that you don't have, you really, really want it. But then when you get it, you don't like it as much anymore, and you want other stuff. The reason for this is that we realize more their insufficiency when we possess them. It's not all that. And this very fact shows us that they are imperfect, and the true good does not consist in them, in the stuff. If only I had a little bit more. It doesn't work that way and destructive. The French writer Gustave Flaubert, of all the winds that blow on love, the demand for money is the coldest and most destructive. When I talk to marriages, for example, that are in distress, more often than not, finances are a factor. Understandably, but there's relational stuff, there's history and origin stuff, but there's always, give or take, this financial stressor where a marriage or a relationship that would otherwise be very tight and connected, the stress over the finances is driving them apart. And if you're here this morning as somebody still figuring out spiritual realities, or you're not quite sure what you believe, if you're here this morning, thank you for being here. If you are a secular person, for instance, though, saying that all we have is the material world, there, there's nothing above, there's nothing below, all we got is what we've got, to the question, how do we escape scarcity? On that mindset, on that worldview, and this is not me being flippant, but I kind of don't know what to tell you. Because if this is all that there is, if this is all that we have, then maybe it makes all the sense in the world just to say, I need more. <laughs> because this is it. I don't want less. I want more. And for whatever it's worth, both capitalism and Marxism, both of them are founded on principles of scarcity. But we destroy our lives and destroy other people when we say, I don't have enough. And if typically the advice is some combination of, well, try to get more and need less, there is some utility in both of those things, but it's not going to give you freedom at the end of the day. Get more, never going to have enough. I think I've mentioned before from the pulpit, was it J.P. Morgan, the old baron that had tons of money? And he was asked once, how much money do you need to have until you'll be financially secure? And he said something like, just a little more. One of the richest guys in the world. So more and more rich isn't going to get it for you. 
But then there are other schools of thought that work in combination that say, don't be so needy. You think you need all of this money and stuff and time and health and recreation and relationships and fun. Just lower your need meter as low as you could possibly go. There's not ultimate freedom there either. And it contrasts with what the Lord Jesus says. I preached this summer from Luke chapter 12 as Jesus is talking there about anxiety. He says something like this. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Don't worry even about the basics, what to eat, what to drink. And Jesus doesn't say here, how dare you have needs? He goes the opposite way and says, your heavenly father, your loving father knows what you need. Seek first God's kingdom and let God take care of all of this stuff. How do we move, escape from scarcity? We need God's security in our lives. How would you characterize Abram in verses 8 and 9? What words come to mind? There's a dispute, not enough space for both. Let no strife come between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll take the right, or vice versa. Just you choose, and I'll be fine. I see there Abram calm, generous, gracious, serene, secure. Lot, you pick. God's got me. Genesis 12, when Abram descended into Egypt, that was not his mindset. But moving back towards the promised land, he's leaning into the promises of God, and God opens Abram's eyes and says, actually, you know what? The land that you're being given, this promised land, it's not that bad after all. And if this were a movie, starting with verse 14, this is where you'd go, think Peter Jackson and New Zealand again. It goes wide and the music swells. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. The covenant promises of God, we talked about that a couple Sundays ago, are reiterated to Abram here and expanded using this image of quantity as the dust of the earth. And later on we'll see as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. I will bless your family around the world. Now what does this mean for us? Practically what can we take away? Because we are inheritors through Jesus of this covenant promise of security to Abram. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago too. If you believe in Jesus, you are part of Abram's family here. What can we expect? Does that mean that God will give me everything that I want? Jim, is that what you're saying? Well, let's put our thinking caps on. There is a school of theology and Christian thought in the church here in the West and then around the world usually called by people on the outside of this type of thinking, the prosperity gospel. Maybe some of you have heard that phrase, it's okay if not. But the prosperity gospel kind of says, and it's within the Christian church, all you have to do is trust in God, and God really is going to give you everything that you want. And if you don't have enough money or enough stuff, especially, you're not trusting God enough. Believe God more so that you can get more. 
And there are a few scripture passages that you can kind of get that from. I think it's an overinterpretation of the Bible in a couple different ways. It causes harm. There are the stereotypes of churches that are just pumping their people for, for money all the time with this false promise of, hey, if you, whatever you put in today, tomorrow, 30, 60, and 100 fold, you'll be blessed. Or the televangelists that say, give me all your money so they can have these lavish lifestyles. Is a prosperity gospel true? No. But if I could give you a tiny bit of sociology along with theology, kind of interesting. Prosperity gospel, historically, has occurred in churches that are full of poor people. And because skin color correlates with income level in a lot of cases around the world, it's for churches of color, minority culture churches, whether two-thirds world or here in America that's primarily the black church that has the prosperity gospel, which makes sense. And I come from the white Christian tradition where prosperity gospel has never gotten as much traction. Makes sense because it's a tradition that, that's more secure financially, more privileged. So I have all the theology books that will say, is a prosperity gospel true? No. And I don't believe that it is. The Bible doesn't back it up. But as I think over the years about how I actually can be driven by scarcity too much, Sometimes I think I've traded a prosperity gospel for a pessimism gospel. A gospel of prosperity for a gospel of pessimism. Is God going to give me instantly everything that I want? Of course not. Well, is God still going to provide for you? I'll say yes, but my yes is a little bit like a credit card bill. Where the big print, yes, but then there's pages and pages and pages of fine print qualifications where I'm saying, well, will God provide for me? Yes, but it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean that. That doesn't mean that I'll have enough necessarily at this point in my life or this point in my life and it's a fallen world and you have to understand that there's scarcity everywhere because of theologically creation fall redemption all that stuff where by the end of the day my fine print is kind of saying jim do you believe that god will provide for you and i'll kind of come back and say no so let's have some balance here let's not let the pendulum swing too far in either direction does Genesis 13 give us a plastic promise or guarantee that automatically whatever scarcity you have in your life right now, by tomorrow it's going to be all better? No. But in Jesus Christ, has God promised long-term to provide for your every need, mysterious as it may sound? You better believe it because Jesus is crucified and resurrected. Also in Luke Jesus says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you, you of little faith? Fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And this is actually a verse that Lloyd quoted to me when he said, I'll do the stairs for free. Jim, doesn't Jesus say, sell your possessions and give to the needy? Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So is the prosperity gospel true? No, because it's even better. It's not be good enough, have enough faith, do enough good stuff, please God, and then God's going to bless you. 
Instead, the cross says you're never going to be good enough. And Jesus nailed the debt for your and my sin on the cross and said, we talked about grace last week, I'm going to bless you freely. Not because you deserve it, but I died because you don't. And I love you anyway, and I love you through it. And it takes work to connect your pessimism to God's provision. That takes work. Take steps of faith towards this Jesus. If you're not sure where you are with Jesus, connect some faith thoughts. If you're driven in your own life, even as somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, by scarcity and not enough, I'm so stressed and angsty and anxious all the time, God, if you're there, provide for me. I need help. Or if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus, I don't trust you here. Name it. Confess that unbelief before God. Stay there. Drill down. God, I need you here. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep sitting here. Be allured by the beauty of generosity. I don't know if you've watched the Lord of the Rings movies in a little while. Gollum is no Tom Cruise, if you know what I mean. He's not that good looking a guy. Kind of ugly. Which is an external manifestation of how Gollum is at a heart level in this case. Being driven by scarcity, that's ugly. Instead, generosity is beauty. French actress Sarah Bernhardt from last century said, it is by spending oneself that one becomes rich. It's by spending oneself that one becomes rich. Let me just take a second to put the screws in a little bit more and then we'll close. If we're not generous, especially with our money and resources, we're, we're sinning against God. Because the resources to begin with are not ours. Middle Ages Thomas Aquinas, 4th century, way before that, John Chrysostom said this. This is going to get our goat a little bit. You've been warned. Not from your own do you bestow upon the poor man. Saying, you don't give poor people money from your own resources, but you make return from what is his, i.e. from the poor person's. This also is theft, not to share one's possessions. Not to be generous, not to share share your possessions, that's theft. The rich man is a steward of the money which is owed for distribution to the poor. Not to share our own wealth with the poor is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. We do not possess our own wealth, but theirs. Your money is not yours. Ultimately, it's God's. But it's for the people that really need it more than you do. The Apostle Paul asks the Corinthian church, For what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? How can we grow in this grace? So circle back to the money that you wrapped your hands around, to the time, to the fun, to the comfort, to the recreation, and take steps in the other direction. It takes work, but there's also release. Do we see in this passage... Abram saying, I gotta be generous, I gotta be generous, I gotta be generous, I gotta stop stressing. No, but we do see him worshiping, bookending the passage. Abram builds an altar, calls upon the name of the Lord at the beginning, and then also at the end. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. In worship, seek God's kingdom and be filled. And know that when we are generous and give, It is not loss, because by faith we gain the security of Almighty God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.